0: Hello there, I'm D-Ready and welcome to Inside Intercom, where we're continuing with our second season of Scale. Over the past few weeks, we've been hearing from a host of brilliant leaders and thinkers from the likes of Google, Yelp and Sprout Social. Individuals who have all successfully propelled their company to a new stage of growth despite the odds. There's no magic formula to scale, but they're sharing their insights as to the growth levers they've found and the advice that they have for others looking to expand their business in just the same way. This week, we're revisiting the SaaStock podcast stage once again, where our own Kirill Nolan spoke with Vidyard CEO, Michael Litt. This was a really great conversation. So much so, in fact, that we've had people who were at the event get in touch to ask when they can hear it. Over the course of their chat, they cover how to flip the freemium model on its head, why moving down markup might be the answer to accelerated growth, and how to build a multi-million dollar business unit almost overnight. We know you're looking forward to hearing this one, so we won't keep you waiting any longer. Let's hear what Michael and Ciarán had to say.
1: Michael, thanks for joining us on the podcast sofa. Yes, I'm really happy to be here. What an
2: awesome audience.
1: So, Mike, for the past eight years, you've been hard at work building Vidyard, taking it from a college project to a major video platform. Can you
2: give us a quick rundown of the Vidyard story? Yeah, so my really good friend, uh, Devin Galloway and I went to undergrad together. And through that period of time, we worked on a bunch of projects, got to know each other really well, learned how to work together. And I had uh, the University of Waterloo, where we did our undergrad, has this really incredible co-op program where you spend four months at school, four months working. And so it's a great place to hire interns and eventually full-time grads. A lot of companies recruit from it specifically. I'm sure there's Waterloo grads at Intercom. (laughs) And I was working at a company called Cypress Semiconductor in Silicon Valley. And I had driven out there with this really old piece of crap car and didn't trust it to make it back on my own. And so I wanted a friend in case I broke down on the side of Route 66 somewhere in the middle of the night, and Devin had never been to California before and was up for the drive. So he flew out and uh, spent a week in San Francisco with me, and then we prepped the drive back. And it's a 4,200-kilometer drive, so it takes about three days. And we ran out of stuff to talk about in, like, the first 15 minutes of the drive. (laughs) And so we started coming up with ideas for, for businesses and opportunities that we could potentially chase as a, as a unit. And uh, what we realized was that every company we worked for was trying to use video to supplement their marketing, sales, or support efforts. No company had internalized that experience or hired people that were specifically designed for that, and so they were contracting out a lot of that work. And we realized we had some pretty limited knowledge of producing videos, but we could do it. And because we were both technical, we could take these kind of complex ideas and and simplify them into stories for companies to tell. And so we started that business. It was called Redwoods Media, and I took my next co-op term off to do that full time. We set a very kind of low bar in terms of a revenue target that if we hit, we would not go find jobs post-graduation. And so we called it Project Christmas because the idea was by Christmas 2010, we had to do $50,000 in content sales. And if we hit that hurdle, we were not gonna go get jobs upon graduating. We were gonna go full steam ahead on this, this uh, agency. So that's exactly what we did. And on Christmas Eve 2010, Devon closed a very large project, which got us to that mark. We didn't think we'd get there. We had already started looking for jobs, but we looked at each other honestly and said, you know what, let's keep this thing going for another year, see what we can do. We can live very cheaply. We're you know, still an undergrad. I was surviving on like $500 a month. So there was very low risk. And uh, we went for it. And from that point, we realized there was an opportunity to build some software and some other layers of technology that supported these customers that we were building video for. And that was the beginning of Vidyard, which got us into Y Combinator. And, and the, the rest is kind of history. I'm sure we're going to talk about it quite a bit here. But uh, that's, the, that's the origin story. For sure. That's a great story. You could drive around Ireland about three or four times in three days. Really? Um, so well, actually, I've done, the, I've done the drive from Dublin to, uh, away. Go away. You yeah, probably completed half the drive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dream is actually go to Skellig Michael. Okay. Uh, before Star Wars made it super famous. Before it was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So you and Devon in the early days, it was a lot of fun,
1: I'm sure, wearing lots of hats. Yes. Can you talk to me about that progression to Mike, the CEO of Vidyard, a 200 person company?
2: Yeah, yeah. So what I'd say is um, only now am I really starting to understand what, uh, what it, being a CEO means. Uh, Early on, to your point, you wear a lot of hats. I was our primary go-to-market engine in that I was doing outbound sales, I was driving leads, I was closing business, um, I was advising kind of product direction based on those conversations. Um, We took customer success very seriously and building what people wanted very seriously. So I was really, really, really in the weeds. When you, I think, make that transition to being a CEO is when you start to scale your efforts. And we were talking earlier about when you let things go versus when you retain things. I think being a CEO is about understanding that balance and taking the things you learn by being really hands-on and identifying a way of building resources to replicate those efforts and ultimately scale it. So that can be in your sales function, that can be what you're doing with partners, that can be the way you're designing and and building product, but setting that expectation for the work ethic, stakeholder alignment, um, the vision, the mission, the values, that's the real CEO work. And what we do now and how this has evolved is, is every year, my job is to create the strategy map for the company. And back in the day, you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't plan one week ahead, let alone one year ahead, yeah. right? And so I work with my senior leadership team and then the executive leadership team to define the direction of the company. We define our mission, our vision, our values, how we win, who we serve, uh, big bets for the year, uh, key tactics for the year, and then KPIs. And my job is to make sure that every single person in the company knows how what they're doing aligns to that strategy. Because if 200 people aren't marching in the same direction, you might as well not have 200 people, you might as well have 20 that are. And so making sure that we're all beating to the same drum and and solving the problems that our customers have in the market with video is really kind of how my, my, my job has changed uh, from 50,000 feet. Yeah. And how do you do that? What, what does that look like in
1: practical terms to get 200 people marching in the same way?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I have this analogy I call Bambi on Ice. And uh, it, the, the reason the analogy is there's this, there's this shot in the, the film Bambi. You may have watched it when you were like five years old. And Bambi's running through the snow and, he, and he's got lots of speed and then he hits the ice and his legs go in a bunch of different directions and eventually he slows down to a stop. And we went through a phase when we were going from probably 50 to 200 people where we scaled super fast, we hired a bunch of people, we didn't have proper onboarding set up, we didn't have a strategy map. People were just put in a job and told to go and solve a problem and do it kind of in their own way. And that's exactly what we had been doing to that point in time. And all of a sudden, Things started slowing down and the momentum started going away, despite the fact that we were four times the size. It was the exact opposite. So I sat down and defined... I was actually in Mexico on a family holiday. It was an all-inclusive. And I ate the steak tartare. And that was a huge mistake. It, I ended up spending the whole week in my hotel room. And so I had lots of time for contemplation. And I wrote this document called Vidyardianism. And it was basically the cultural code of what it is to be a Vidyardian, and what's expected of you and how you work. And that was kind of the baseline. And every new employee read this document and signed it, and that was their commitment to the culture, and then dipped their hand in company colors and pressed their hand on the wall of the elevator shaft, so they're reminded of this commitment every single day. The next was the strategy map. So how do we build a structure that every single person in the company knows how what they're doing contributes to that that vision, right? And whether that's a a product idea, like a key tactic for us was was freemium and self-serve. Another key tactic was decreasing time to value and decreasing friction in the sales process. How do people actually go and do that if that's the big vision for the company? And so there's all sorts of, of, of little mechanisms that we use to drive those results. But another thing I realized is, you know, on the senior leadership team, I have to involve them in the process of defining these goals and these outcomes. And so what that shook out into is every Monday, we basically run a planning process where uh, our ELT team meets, executive leadership team, that's all the C-levels, and basically we plan headcount, resourcing, we talk about budget, we talk about performance, we, we look at all the K, uh, core metrics for the business and define where we could spend money most productively. Then we go into the senior leadership team meeting, which is basically all VPs, where we deliver that result and then we talk as a group about blockers that are prohibiting us from getting to our goals. Then we run our forecast meeting with our, with our team. And then on Tuesday, we do an all hands with the whole company and update them on everything that came out of that Monday process. So again, it's all about beating to the same drum and ensuring that everybody's on the same mission with the same vision and understands how their work is applying to it. Because I think the, the, the blessing and the curse of this current generation of worker, call it millennial, call it Gen Z is they have to understand the why behind what they're doing. Nobody is going to blindly march off a cliff on your behalf, and so defining that why is is critically important, and and that's probably the most important part of my job. Yep. I'm sure that was the case for the recent, I would imagine, biggest project that you guys
1: have completed, which was to rethink your pricing and packaging. Yep. That seems like a big shift in in how you originally thought about um, how to position Vidyard. So can you tell me a little bit about
2: the motivation behind that change what changed, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a ton changed. I mean, so traditionally, we've been a very enterprise-focused company, mm-hmm. uh, and this was based on the way we built it. We would call organizations that we believed had a problem we could solve. We'd work with them to solve it. And over time, we added content and partners and drove some inbound. Uh, but really, the, the barrier to entry, if you wanted to be a customer, was you had to be you know, in 200-plus employee range. Then a couple things happened. One, one of our SDR leaders, said, the AE team keeps turning down these companies that are less than 200 employees that really will get value out of our software. Can I go and sell them a custom SKU? We said, sure. Here's one BDR that you can upgrade to an AE and you can hire one externally. And in the first month, he's, I think he sold about $150,000 worth of software. Wow. So we thought, okay, there's obviously something here in this, in this lower down market. In parallel with that, HubSpot Um, decided to OEM our product into their landscape of products. So if you use Sales Hub, Marketing Hub, or Service Hub today, they have video functionality that's powered by us. And through that process, we acquired about 25,000 organizations that use HubSpot Video, and we were able to sell them on advanced features once they started using the product. So we started to realize there was probably some pent-up demand, down market that, that we could essentially apply ourselves to. And this was kind of combined with a number of market dynamics. One in Martech, you know, there's 7,000 companies competing for budget for the marketing budget. There's only so much budget available. It's still a very large TAM, but when we started, there was only 150 of those companies. And so, how do you stand out when every one of those companies is trying to say the same thing to the CMO, enterprise or small business? And the way you do that is by removing the barrier to entry and allowing people to use the product for free, get value out of it. And then if they need the advanced functionality, buy that functionality and go to their CMO or their VP Digital or their VP Sales for a budget at that time. And in fact, this was compounded by uh, Brian Halligan, who who asked an audience I was with, how many of you have made a software purchasing decision in the past year, and nobody's hand went up. And the reason for that is, again, it's a consensus-based sale. People inside the organization are saying, like, we're using this, we're getting value out of it. I would like to buy it. And the CMO's like, okay, well, you've already got value out of it. You've loaded a bunch of videos onto it maybe you're using a a chat service or something like that that's being really productive, we're gonna now pay for this, for this advanced functionality, security features, et cetera. So it started as being a way of serving smaller businesses, but then became a really effective way of working with enterprises. And so that meant a complete overhaul of the way we thought about building product, um, the tiering of of our product and engineering teams, Our go-to-market strategy, how sales responded to these users, how do we build a customer success strategy for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of free users, and hundreds of thousands of users that are are paying on their credit card versus what was traditionally a very hands-on model. And so we made this transition to ensure that we were lined up with the way software companies and enterprises were buying software in the future. And uh, I think it's a real future-proofing strategy, and I'm really excited about it. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
1: You have spoken in the past about, or given a word of warning, about starting with freemium models and then scaling up and spoken about how difficult that is to build an enterprise level company using that model. So talk to me about that evolution and changing your way of thinking.
2: Yeah, so, you know, the reality is we call it reverse freemium because we built an enterprise product um, that, you know, has a a multi-folder architecture, is ADA compliant, you know, GDPR compliant, is secure, all the things that that big organizations use. Automatically transcribes all video assets for ADA compliance to make sure that they're accessible, all, all all that stuff. And what that means is we have this robust kind of stack of technology that, Companies can upgrade into, right? And, and when you think about the status quo for putting a video on the internet, it's Vimeo and YouTube, right. but neither of those products have that enterprise complexity and functionality built in. So we merged the the free experience for the creation product, which is the web webcam recorder and video recording product, formerly called Go Video, it's yep. a Chrome extension, with the broader experience, and stripped away all this complex technology to create a product that. Uh, had the goal of being the fastest and easiest way to put a video on the internet, and then from there had the functionality that you could scale into as your organizational complexity increased. And so by going that direction, we didn't have to build all this stuff as we went to acquire bigger customers. We just had to strip it away and simplify the experience. So our effort wasn't necessarily a huge technology hurdle that we had to cross. It was a UX challenge and simplifying the structure of the team to be able to address that accordingly. The biggest change there, then, is aligning the dev team to the customer tiers. And so we have a dev team that focuses on free. There's a PM, a designer, and then the engineering stack with an engineering lead. Same thing goes for Pro, which is the upgraded package that costs $20 a month, then business, and then enterprise. And all the APIs and microservices are aligned to those teams And our shared resources, but the features and functionality are specific to that type of customer. And that was a massive transition that I think has been somewhat painful for the team. Sales really, in the end of the day, the only difference for them is they're not just talking to MQLs or marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads. Now they're talking to product qualified leads. These are people that are using the software and getting value out of it at companies of all sizes. And so for them, this is a dream come true, because it means more ad bats more conversations, And better conversations because people understand what we do and how we can help them.
1: Yep. And Vidyard Go has obviously been a huge success for you guys. I think 3 million videos have been created on that platform. Yeah. Um, How do you think about converting those active users into your paid subscriptions?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good question, right? And and so one of the things that we decided to do was to make MAUs a KPI that, that the whole business cared about. And not only that, but an MAU has to have a bunch of criteria that makes it difficult to become. And so a lot of companies, like an MAU is someone who's installed the software or signed into the software. We say, okay, you have to install it, sign into it, and you actually have to create a video or upload a video and then have that video viewed by someone, right? Meaning you're getting the full extent of value that we provide. If you are that, you get placed into an MAU bucket. And then the goal there is showing you the features and functionality that can potentially get you into that paid tier. Slack is a really great example of this. 95% of the functionality you need from a messaging platform for the enterprise is free. But when you hit a certain level where you need compliance, you need need message history, you need these enterprise-grade features, that's when you buy it. And you're happy to buy it because you need those features and you've gotten so much value out of the product already. And so we're very strict on what makes an active user and then looking at what they're doing that might define that better usage. The reality is, if someone doesn't pay for the software because they're getting value out of it and it's all the value they're ever going to need, that's totally fine because that means they're using us and no one else. And who knows if that person goes into a company in the future that has bigger needs and is aware of what we do and then becomes a customer downstream. So it's, looking at the data is, is very, very important, but understanding the right data and not necessarily over-engineering the data to tell the story you want Hopefully the data tells the story we need to experience in order to understand what features functionality and, and triggers we can build on the product in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to know how you set your sales team up around those free users. So who's the team that's responsible for analyzing that? Maybe not analyzing the data, but taking that data back to the prospect and, and talking yeah. to them
2: about upgrading. Yes, yeah, so we have a term we call hot PQLs. Ooh. And a hot PQL is a product qualified lead that, so somebody in an organization is really getting value out of the product. And um, other people in the organization are signing up for the product as well. And so when that happens, we have a a business development team that will connect with those individuals, try to identify who their leader is, and say, hey, by the way, lots of people are using this product. Um, But the problem is, they're using the free version of the product. And when you're using the free version of the product, Um, the branded sharing page or the experience that you send customers to when you send them a video is a Vidyard branded experience. So you say, first and foremost, let's make this an intercom branded experience, for instance, right? And you've got a library of video content that marketing has produced. Let's make that available to your sales reps to use in the sales process. And then let's let's take that viewer data that you're getting from all these one-to-one or one-to-many video viewing interactions and pipe that data into your CRM or into your marketing automation system and so it becomes this more complex conversation. So the BDRs drive that. And if that person is willing to have a demo of those additional features, then an AE gets involved and runs that process, right? So the only real difference to our sales team is, again, you know, someone would come and fill in a form on the website and be like, I'd like to talk to someone in sales. And then that would take a week and a half to organize that meeting. Um, Now they're able to use the product before they talk to someone in sales. Same thing goes for a sales qualified lead, which was a BDR cold calling into a business saying, hey, this is what we do, are you interested? Obviously, that doesn't convert very well, and I think has diminishing returns over time because of the volume of companies that are doing that. So sales loves it because again, now they're having these conversations with people that really love the product. I mean, what's amazing for me is I walked into the Intercom booth, and all sorts of people at Intercom were like, I love your product. And a year and a half ago, that would have never happened. So it, it warms the cockles of my heart, if you will, <laughs> to hear bad. that, right, and see that. So I'm really excited about it. Nice, that's awesome. Another
1: huge lever for you guys is how you think about partnerships. Yes. Um, you mentioned HubSpot. Um, you announced another partnership with Adobe earlier this year. Yep. Uh, so talk to me about how that feeds into your revenue and how it's part of your, your growth strategy.
2: Yeah, so, so Brian Halligan got on stage in 2016 at in Inbound and said, stop hiring bloggers start hiring video producers. And, and I think that was a meaningful moment in time that spoke to the value of video in kind of the inbound process, and the inbound theory. The problem was HubSpot didn't have a video product, right? They had a, a, a growing partnership landscape. And we've always invested in partner relationships. Our first one was Aliqua, then Marketo. Mm-hmm. We feed video viewing data into those systems to uh, better enhance nurture activities yeah. that these companies are running. and so. We went to HubSpot and said, look, here are our APIs, you can build this functionality in your product, we'll allow you to do it for free, and then we're going to own 100% of the customer relationship if there's an opportunity for them to do more with our product outside of the HubSpot ecosystem. So there's very, very little skin in the game for them to commit the product resources to build on top of our APIs. And again, our APIs are designed to make it easy to transcode video, to analyze viewers, there's a the Player API, Transcriptions API, Analytics API, all that stuff is, is kind of nicely packaged up. Yep. So they built that and in a year we got to 20,000 organizations wow. that had uploaded content and it was about 300,000 videos. And so it was very productive for us and we were able to kind of mine that base of users who were raising their hands and saying, I want to do more with this and own that relationship. So Overnight, it became a multi-million dollar business unit for us, which, been, which is really, really exciting. Conversely, uh, in Marketo landscape, you know, we were their number one Accelerate partner in okay. terms of, yes. or their LaunchPoint ecosystem, which is their integrated ecosystem. And when Adobe bought Marketo, you know, Marketo stopped innovating for a minute and was looking for product extensibility outside of what Marketo could do that their sales reps could sell to make their products stickier. And of course, Adobe has an amazing creative suite and a lot of videos are produced in Adobe. And so it made sense that they would be able to resell a video platform that partnered with this new acquisition they made in Marketo that really helped them target and win them in market. So each of these partnerships is different. Each of these partnerships has someone dedicated to maximizing the value we can get from that. And so everything's different, right? In In the case of Marketo, it's this reseller arrangement and it's enabling the sales reps and the CSMs. In the case of HubSpot, it's having this free product and a sales motion that allows us to talk to them but also enabling the hubs by agencies which represent 40% of their revenue and a billion dollars of services revenue globally annually so these are all very different you know we we'd love to talk to intercom because we think video has a really special place in chat just like it does in the consumer landscape we think that should exist in the enterprise because the same people that you know are using snapchat and instagram and tiktok and you know, running shoe brands or advertising to them are also the ones that are buying enterprise software. And so they deserve the same experience. They want the same experience. So by having a really great set of APIs and focusing on that and then building our features on top of that, it makes integrating really easily. And then having a team that's dedicated to maximizing these partnerships and ensuring that we're actually enabling the partner effectively has proven successful. I will say, though, it is a long-term strategy. It doesn't happen overnight. And, and it's hard enough to teach our own sales reps how to sell our new technology, trying to teach a company sales reps, how to sell something on top of what they're already selling is also very difficult. So you have to make the packaging really simple, really easy, and the economic terms have to make sense for both parties. Yeah, makes sense. Coming to the end now, you guys have got to 200 employees, roughly, all based in North America.
1: Yes. Talk to me a little bit about your growth plans for, for the future, for the next couple of years.
2: Yeah, so our, our biggest region is North America. After that is, is EMEA, and then Asia Pacific. And What we've been doing for the past year is kind of watching what happens in EMEA and trying to understand where that organic traffic and organic interest in our products is coming from and start to work with partners to drive adoption in EMEA. And and interestingly enough, the Go Video product we're talking about, or the Chrome extension, is very, very, very effective in this market. And understanding that has been an interesting journey. And part of the reason why I'm here at SaaS Talk this week because I think that we can, through our Marketo relationship and through our HubSpot relationship and through some other partners, we can enter into this market with a leg up and existing demand already in place. And so international expansion, I think, is not something to be taken lightly. It requires the right person at the right time with the right strategy. But we're probably inches away from going and executing that. And uh, I I personally want to do it in Dublin because there is such a, a legacy of companies doing this successfully. Love the culture, love the people, we're Canadian, and so we're a little more similar than probably some of our American counterparts might be culturally, and so hopefully we can, we can make it work, and then after that we'll be APAC. Great. I think Dublin's a much better
1: location than Skellig Michael. Yes, yeah. It has yeah. its advantages, but... Probably um, warmer. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I don't know about that, actually. <laughs> so uh, coming back to the first question I asked then to wrap it up, in terms of how that... Feels as a co-founder, letting go to another office, to another leader potentially in a, in a totally different continent. How do you manage that? How do you grow into that role again? It seems like another evolution.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a really good one um, for me, and and we are in this process. It's about finding someone who you can be very very transparent with respect to your expectations from day one. And to open a new office is, is not to be a GM from day one, right? That can be the title, but your first order of operation is selling. And doing that with me and bringing me along and using me as almost a cultural foil to help accelerate your learning and then parsing me out of that operation as you go and scale it, right? And I think I am really good at starting things and that's where my passion is. Like when we built, the, 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 Gov- the Chrome extension, my co-founder and one product manager went away in a silo and built that thing really quickly and kept it away from the rest of the company because we didn't want the company to get their, their fingers in it and slow down the process. Yeah. But eventually, we hand that into the machine that operates it and scales it. So I think being a founder is about, and being a CEO, more effectively. Being a founder is about being able to start things. Being a CEO is about translating that start into scale. And uh, that's an ongoing journey for me. It's something I'm heavily and continuously investing in, but uh, hopefully I'm getting much better at it.
1: Well, best of luck with that journey. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back on Inside Intercom soon. I'd love that. Great. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This
2: is Inside Intercom.